continue our series from the book of Acts entitled Rooted in Purpose. And today we're going to jump ahead a few chapters, then go backwards next uh, Sunday to catch up the ground that we are passing over. And the title of today's study from Acts chapter 15 is Purposeful Reconciliation. I thought it would be good to skip ahead because this passage was particularly appropriate on this weekend when we honor uh, the life and ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so uh, the theme of today, morning and evening, morning here on the Pomona campus and tonight at the Claremont campus, the theme is reconciliation. This morning, purposeful reconciliation. Tonight, we're going to talk about radical reconciliation. Uh, through, we're going to be honoring Dr. King through music, uh, through media, and also through a message, a radical uh, uh, reconciliation, the Bible's answer to discrimination. And I think you'll be fascinating as we study into God's Word how the reasons are all there sociologically, uh, legally, and, of course, theologically and spiritually as well. Uh, by the way, uh, Kimberly and I got a chance to go to the movie on Dr. King's life, Selma, uh, on Friday night. And uh, it's just a phenomenal movie. Very Christian. I'd recommend it to you. The only thing you might be careful about with your children is that Dr. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson has kind of a foul mouth in it. So, uh, you know, other than the cussing of our President Lyndon Johnson in that movie, it's really a tremendous Christian uh, movie, and I would highly recommend it uh, to you. So tonight, I would love to see you as we have this service to honor Dr. King at the Claremont campus, at the Hub Purpose Church at 5, from 5 to 6, then dinner follows at 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock tonight, tremendous music and media, and I'll be teaching on that particular subject. But now this morning from Acts chapter 15, purposeful reconciliation, how to handle conflict with other people. We're going to see two different conflicts, one between two different groups of people within the church, and then between two friends within the church, two leaders within the church. Verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised, that is in accordance with Jewish law, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were saying to these Gentiles, Gentiles or Greeks, means anybody who's not Jewish, they were saying to these non-Jews that when you come to Christ, that's great. But you have to add to your faith in Jesus a following strictly after the Jewish law. So they're saying Jesus plus the Jewish law, you'll be saved. Whereas Paul and Barnabas were preaching, Jesus plus nothing will save you. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and a debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, a little bit of a side trail here. When you see the phrase up to Jerusalem, it literally means up in elevation. Normally today, if you go south, we say you're going down. If we go north, we say you're going up. So you're going up to Sacramento, you're going down to San Diego. But back then, they said up to Jerusalem for two reasons. Number, number one was topographically, it was higher in elevation. So you were literally climbing up to Jerusalem. Second was theologically or spiritually, Jerusalem was the center of all life within Israel, so they referred to it as going up to Jerusalem to ask about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad, and when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, this is Pharisees who had come to Christ since his resurrection, stood up and said, 
the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now we got good news and bad news. The good news is that some of the Pharisees who had so opposed Jesus, persecuted him, they had become followers of Christ after his resurrection. This is another evidence for the resurrection. Not just how many people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, not just the long period of time that they saw Jesus, but the types of people that followed after Jesus. Here were the Pharisees who had been converted. What could cause that change? Only an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the good news. The bad news is they brought their baggage with them. Uh, How many of us, when we come to Christ, bring baggage with us, okay? We may be changed, as the APU Gospel Choir was singing at the 830 service. They were talking about being changed, and we're changed. Our heart is changed. We now are pure from our sin in God's sight. But the, the other change, the actual change, takes a lifetime until we get to heaven. And little by little, we continue to actually change, even though in God's sight, we are instantly changed, and he sees us as forgiven for our sins. And so we bring our baggage with us, our old perspective, our old ideas, uh, the things uh, from our past we bring with us. And these Pharisees had come to Christ, that's the good news, but they brought along with them their baggage of legalism, and that was the bad news. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And we're going to talk more about that uh, tonight at, uh, at Claremont. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? We haven't been able to keep the Jewish law for 1,500 years. Why would you put this on the Gentiles? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Jesus plus nothing will save us. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. James spoke up. Now, this is a big deal. This is the half-brother of Jesus. You've heard the phrase, you know, brother from a different mother. Well, this is brother from a different father. Uh, James had, they both had Mary, Jesus and James, both had Mary as their mother. But James, his father was Joseph, and Jesus' father was God. And so this is the half-brother of Jesus that is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, that's another evidence for the resurrection. The only thing harder than getting a Pharisee or somebody that opposed you to believe in you is to get one of your family members who didn't believe in you to believe in you. How many of you would have trouble convincing your brother or your sister that you're God? You know, how many would have trouble with that? Okay, and and Jesus had trouble with that through his lifetime. And it was only after he rose from the dead that his brother James said, "Uh, yes, I too will follow Christ. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for us from the, from the name, from the Gentiles, for his name, from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, that is the nation of Israel. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. 
rebuild Israel, the Jewish people, so that through this vehicle, the rest of us could be followers of Christ as well. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Anybody want to say amen to that? Most of us here are Gentiles. We have uh, many Jewish believers within our church family, but most of us are non-Jewish. And so he said, let's not make it hard. Let's not make it beyond what it is. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's not add to it to make it more difficult. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And we'll talk about that in a minute. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, that's one conflict between Paul and Barnabas and this group of what we call Judaizers. These were Pharisees that believed that you also had to keep the Jewish law. So Paul and Barnabas versus the Judaizers, that's conflict number one. Now, conflict number two is Paul against Barnabas. In the first conflict, they're together against the Judaizers. Now, they have a conflict with each other. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now, what had happened previously on a previous missionary journey is that they had taken Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. And for whatever reason, he bailed on them halfway through the missions trip. They're halfway through the missions trip, and whether it just got too hard physically or too much persecution or he just got tired of it all, he bailed on them halfway through. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him. Now, there are two types of people. Uh, People-oriented and task-oriented. If you've ever worked on a school project at school or you ever work on a committee, you know there are the people-oriented people. That is, they want to get the job done, but they want to make sure everybody feels good about each other when it's all done. Everybody's at peace when the process is completed. And then there are task-oriented people. And all they care about is that the job gets done, and if a few feelings get hurt along the way, oh well, but they are more concerned about getting the task done. I remember Jim Beheim, the coach of the Syracuse Orangemen men's basketball, uh, he once said, you know, I've had teams that got along with each other just great, but they didn't win many games. And then I've had guys that didn't like each other all that much, and they won the national championship. And you could tell by that quote that he was a task-oriented guy. Get the job done, even if you hurt some feelings along the way. But we need a balance of the two within the body of Christ. Now, Barnabas was people-oriented. He was more concerned about giving his cousin a second chance. Let's, let's be concerned about his growth. This young man has had a failure, but let's give him a second chance so he can grow through the experience. And Paul was more fixated on the task of sharing the gospel. He didn't want to risk uh, fulfilling that task by depending on somebody who had failed him before. Uh, He didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Think of that. Two of the most influential Christians in all of human history, Barnabas and Paul, had such a problem with each other that they split and they go in opposite directions. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Now, God used it to double his missionary force. Okay, he used this dispute 
so that Paul went one way with Silas and Barnabas went the other way with John Mark and actually God was sovereign over this conflict. And you got to realize, it's not that conflict is a bad thing and lack of conflict is a good thing. That's not what we're saying here. There will be conflict in the church. People are often surprised. Oh my goodness, I can't believe Christians disagree with each other sometimes. I can't believe there's conflict in the church. There will always be conflict in the church because there are people in the church. And if you don't get rid of the people, you don't get rid of the conflict. It's like that proverb. This is not a very flattering analogy, I realize, but that proverb that says when you got a, a barn full of cows, there's going to be a lot of manure, but you can do make a lot of money on those cows. But a barn that's empty, you don't have any manure to clean up, but you're not going to make any money on those cows. Not a very flattering analogy for the church. But where people get together, there's manure, okay? There's this relational stuff going on, all right? And there will be conflict. So don't, we well, gotta be so careful. I see so many people that say, oh, you know, I don't go to church anymore because I got burned by it, you know, this way or that way. And, and they don't do that in any other area. Nobody ever says, yeah, I had a rude waiter once, so I never gone to a restaurant ever again in my life. You know, I had somebody be mean to me. An usher was mean to me at an Angels game, so I'm never going back to an Angels game again. Nobody, nobody ever does that. And yet somehow Satan makes that an acceptable excuse within our minds that some usher was mean to us or somebody was mean to our kids in Sunday school or something like that. And so we, we bail on God. And, and there will be conflict. The key is not that there's an absence of conflict. Here's the key in a healthy church is they know how to handle the conflict. There will always be conflict, but how do we handle it? The five ways that we can deal with conflict. Number one is to withdraw. Just physically leave. And frankly, that's what the two of the most mature Christians that ever lived, Paul and Barnabas, that's how they handle things, okay? These two great leaders, they just withdraw. And maybe you don't withdraw physically, but you withdraw emotionally. A second is win. Some people, there's conflict, they just have to win that thing. A third type is to yield. That is, they always uh, give in when there's conflict. Now, they make you pay for it in other ways, either through a martyr complex or passive aggressiveness. You know, I've shared with you before that when Kimberly and I got married, uh, she came from a family that was skilled at dealing with conflict. And my family was not. I mean, there, there was a lot of arguing all the time. And in my family, I, I know this sounds crazy. I'd never heard my parents raise their voice all the time I was growing up. Never heard them have an argument. So we get married, and, and within a couple of days or weeks, we're having our first big argument. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I done? I've married a crazy woman. She is insane. What is this? Good people don't argue. Well, what's up with this? I've made a mistake here, you know. And I had this very pompous attitude. Oh, she's so out of control of her emotions. I am Jesus in this situation, and I will just stuff my feelings. And I'd stuff them for a while, and then two or three days later, I'd blow up over something random that went on. And as time went on, I began to realize she was the functional one, not me. My wife, Kimberly, when you're walking through a minefield, when you step on the mine, it blows up. Boom, no leg, okay? You know you step up. And so I can grow. I can say when I step there, she feels this particular way. With me, you walk through my minefield, you'll step on a mine, and three days later, off in the distance, boom, something goes off. <laughs> and you'll sit there, and you'll go, I wonder what caused that. 
And there's no real way to know, you know? It's, it's, it's so separate that how can Kimberly grow? How can our relationship grow? Because she has no clue what, what, what caused that thing. Now, the fourth seems like the right answer, compromise. You give a little, I give a little. But actually, and that's okay in some cases, but actually that's not God's ideal. The ideal is to resolve. And what I mean by that is where each person grows through the conflict and they come out a different person on the other side agreeing on the decision and marching in unison towards that new goal. That's what resolution is, is where each of us consider the positions of the other person and we learn from it and we grow from it and we resolve it and we move on in a fresh combined effort. Now, just to make this thing practical and not theoretical, uh, write there on your study outline. Write down three things, fill in the blanks there. First of all, which do I tend to do? Which, which of those is me of one through five? Which does my best friend or my spouse tend to do? And if you're sitting next to them, bend this over after you uh, write it down there, okay? Now, think of the person you're having the most conflict with right now, either at school or a fellow a co-worker, maybe a person here in the church, and write down which one, one through five, do they most tend to do. Now, the next page of your study outline. Seven steps for dealing with conflict. Number one is commit to unity. Make a commitment to unity, not to an absence of conflict, but a commitment to unity in spite of conflict. I've heard it once said, to live above with saints above, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints below, oh, that's a different story. And somebody after the 8.30 service told me a different version of it. To live above with saints I love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints I know, oh, that's a different story. But we commit to unity in, in our marriage. Our marriages are not going to be free of conflict, but we commit to unity in spot, working, resolving that conflict. The same is true in all of our relationships. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You've heard me say this many times before. I've seen God bless all kinds of churches. Big churches, small churches, urban churches, rural churches, charismatic churches, non-charismatic churches, Young churches, old churches, or churches like ours, where it's kind of equally across all generations. Uh, I've seen God bless all kinds of churches, but the kind of church I've never seen him bless is a disunified church. He only blesses unified churches. Not churches free of conflict, but people that are committed to unity in spite of our differences, despite our conflict. This is the prayer Jesus had for us 2,000 years ago. May they be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, Jesus said the way the world will know that he's the real thing is when they see us love each other in spite of our differences and in spite of our conflict. That's when they'll know. Romans 15, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Colossians 3.14, this is one of Kimberly's favorite verses. It was read at our wedding uh, years ago. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know, people often say to me, you know, Glenn, I've just done everything. 
and nothing's worked. And, and I just lovingly say back, have you really tried everything? You can't think of one more thing to do to bring resolution in that situation? Or, you know what, let me not be hard on others. Let me be hard on myself. Let me look in the mirror and say, Glenn, have you really tried everything? You can't think of one more thing uh, to try. Make every effort to keep the unity. Number two, pick the right battles. How clearly has God spoken on a particular subject? Okay, If he's spoken clearly within his word, that is worth the conflict. But if he is not, the Bible will say that is not worth the conflict. How clearly has God spoken on a particular subject? Now we see this in Acts chapter 15. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. Now, how you're saved is worth a good old-fashioned church fight. That is worth it. Because God has clearly spoken on the subject, therefore it is worth the conflict. But then later on in the chapter, they say other things are not worth it. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Anything beyond what's clearly taught in God's word just becomes a burden uh, to people. Uh, one of the quotes we live by here at our church is uh, supposedly Augustine. I've heard it may or may not be attributed to him, but I love this quote. In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. In the essentials, that is the things clearly taught in God's word, where open-minded Christians can, can agree and see that the scriptures clearly teach that on those things as a church we must have unity. In non-essentials, now that doesn't mean they're not important. It's still important to have convictions on many different things, but an open-minded Christians can sometimes disagree agreeably. Okay, for example, the fact that Jesus is coming back someday. Clearly taught in the Bible, we should be unified on that. But exactly the order of events and how that's going to happen and, you know, pre-trib, pan-trib, pan-millennial, it's all going to pan out in the end. I, I don't know, you know, whatever your position is, that's, that's a joke told by Paul to Peter over a campfire 2,000 years ago. It was uh, the oldest uh, joke in the book. But exactly the exact order of events, that's something I think we can all agree the scriptures are crystal clear on. And so in those non-essentials, we have liberty to believe as we see fit within the body of Christ. And, and we can still have unity despite those differences. And in all things, the thing that makes it work is charity, is love. Now the problem happens in churches when non-essentials are raised to the level of essentials. That's when difficulty comes. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus and God's word. And the main thing is to hold on to those things clearly taught here, but on things that aren't so clear in non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. Uh, Paul refers to these secondary things as disputable matters. He says in Romans 14, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. I love Proverbs 19 verse 11. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. When you just choose out of love to overlook somebody offending you, it is to your glory and it brings God's glory. Now, on the other hand, Kimberly and I have a saying in our marriage that goes like this. Don't be nicer than you are. And we'll often say that to each other. Now, we're gonna decide something. Don't, don't be nicer than you are. What do I mean by being nicer than you are? If God gives you grace in a certain situation to overlook an offense and to yield and to give in, do it. But if you know 
you're going to say, okay, I'll do that thing. But inside, you're ticked off. And it's going to curdle there until it blows up a couple of days later. Don't be nicer than you are. Okay, if Kimberly wants to go to an event at the kids' school on Tuesday night, and I don't feel like going, and I say, okay, we'll, we'll just go. But she knows I'm going to have a bad attitude the whole time I'm there and getting ready and at it and coming home. Well, now we need to talk that through until we get resolution. So don't be nicer than you are. If you're able to overlook something with the help of God, do it. Blow it off. But if you're not able to, work it through to resolution. Number three, look for a third alternative. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to do three things. Abstain from food polluted by idols. Now, some people would say, well, this is just a compromise. He's saying, obey a little bit of the Jewish law and, and, and compromise and don't obey the whole thing. But no, it's not a compromise. It's a resolution. They've resolved themselves on the main point, which is Jesus and Jesus alone will save you. Jesus plus nothing will save you. That's the main thing that they got resolution on. But they said in these other things, let's just be sensitive out of love. Okay, there are certain things that for Jewish Christians within your church family are going to be like fingernails on a blackboard. Or for the Jews that you're trying to reach, it's going to be like fingernails on a blackboard. It's going to be just unnecessarily insensitive uh, to them. And, and, And so they gave this list. Abstain from food polluted by idols. What does that mean? Well, they used to take the, the meat and they used to offer it up to Zeus and then they'd sell it at a discount in the market, okay? So people say, well, you know, people that thought about it logically said, so what? They took a hunk of meat, they stuck it in front of a, of a, of a stone and said some mumbo jumbo and then they sell it for a discount. Sounds like a good deal to me. But for the Jewish believers, just sitting there eating something that had been offered up in honor of Zeus or Apollo or Diana. Um, you know, it just, it just was like fingernails on a blackboard to him. So he said, why don't you just avoid those things for the sake of peace? Sexual immorality, that's something clearly taught within Scripture. And from the meat of strangled animals and from blood, that's a kosher meal. Why don't you just, out of sensitivity to the Jewish Christians, the, the people you want to reach and the people that are in your church, why not be sensitive to them? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, people that are sensitive to the needs of others to make for the unity and the peace, for they will be called children of God. And then number four, remember that resolving something takes time. Don't be discouraged by three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, four steps back, two steps forward, one step back. Resolving something takes time. Some things we're going to keep working on until we get to heaven. It's very interesting in these two examples in Acts chapter 15, the thing that seemed to be resolved kept coming back again and again and again. And the thing that did not seem resolved is the thing that got solved for good later on. Uh, the thing that seemed to be resolved, this whole question about uh, the Jewish Christians and, and, and being sensitive, that seemed to be resolved. Got that done. You see that coming up again and again in Scripture. It, it says here later on in the book of Galatians, when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face. 
Why? Because Peter was the apostle to the Jews and, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so Peter kept slipping back into the influence of these Jewish Christians and he began to say that you had to keep the Jewish law. And so Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, withstood him to the face. Boom! That, that conflict had to keep being resolved. Let me ask you a question. After 2,000 years of church history, is legalism still a problem within the church? Okay, this is something we probably will never resolve until we get to heaven. Now, fascinating that the thing that didn't seem resolved, Paul, Barnabas, I'm so mad, I'm going my own way. That thing got resolved. And eventually Paul said, you know what, I was too hard on John Mark. And at the end of his life, as you read those passages, he said, get Mark, bring him to me because he's helpful to me in my ministry. You know, I was wrong. We should have given him a second chance. Mark has turned out, despite his failure earlier as a young man, he has turned out just to be a superstar uh, in ministry, and I appreciate him so much. Number five, listen carefully to the other person's viewpoint. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It says in verse 12, the whole assembly. Now, now in, you know, we give the Pharisees a hard time, but, you know, many of them were godly, godly people. Okay, they were godly people. And, and look at them. They, rather than just shout Paul and Barnabas down, they became silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. You know, I often say, when you have an opposing position with somebody, listen long enough until you can articulate their position better than they can themselves. That's when true understanding, doesn't mean you agree with them. But have you gotten to the point where you could articulate their position better than they could articulate themselves? Boy, if we did that in politics, if we did that in so many areas, wouldn't there be more resolution going on? Um, if, we, if we truly listened to the point where we understood their position and could articulate it better than they could. Number six, ask God to give you a yielding spirit. And number seven, be willing to die to yourself to go the extra mile for resolution. Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you. Now, I don't want you to have a guilt trip. You, some of you have gone the extra mile. You have done everything, and there's still no resolution. Now, that's their problem, and let God deal with it, okay? I want you to take the burden off of you. That's, that's in their court now. That's up to God and them. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Which one of these seven steps do I need to take this week in order to resolve a current conflict in my life? Let's stand for the closing benediction. I'm reading from Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.